So today is kind of, it's, it's a weird Sunday. We just had this beautiful time uh, worshiping together again with our uh, Grace Student Ministry and even our Grace Kids Choir. And hopefully I'm not about to ruin it for you by talking about death. But this is probably the most hyped sermon series that I've ever had in my pastoral career. I've been talking about this series on dying and death for months. But it actually goes back much further than that. This idea of preaching a sermon series on dying and death goes back really six, seven, maybe eight years ago when I was pastoring in Wyoming. Uh, I thought that this is just something we as the church need to talk about. And here we are now today finally talking about it on this All Church Sunday with all of these kids in the room. What could go wrong? But I do want to reassure all the mamas in the room that today's going to be pretty tame. I don't anticipate that anybody's going to leave here crying or having nightmares. At least nobody did in the first service. So I think you're going to be pretty safe. Um, but truly, as one of the realities, one of the responsibilities that I feel as your pastor is to help you think through and prepare for the reality that unless the rapture happens in our lifetime, we're all going to die. I hate to burst your bubble on that, but it's just the truth. However, no one ever prepares us for death, even though it is an inevitable reality for us all. Death is something we cannot escape we must not ignore, and for which the wise will prepare. So for the next seven weeks, I'm going to lead us on this biblical survey of death and how we can die well. That's really going to be the focus of our time and our attention these next several weeks, is how can we die well? Back in the 1400s, there were a few Latin texts or manuals that were circulated and they were entitled Ars Moriendi, translated as The Art of Dying. And back in the 1400s, this was a necessity for people because you often died in your home surrounded by your family. This was before the days of hospice and hospitals and uh, nursing homes. And so people's family were those people who were there around them when they died. And so these manuals instructed people on what to expect during death. And we'll talk a little bit about that, but our primary focus throughout this series is going to be living our life now in such a way that when we do die, and none of us know when that day will come, but living our life now in such a way that when we do die, we can look back on our life and say, you know what, I lived well. My basic thesis for this series is that a person can die a good death if they've lived a good life by understanding and preparing for the inevitability of their death. It's like the great fictional philosopher of Shawshank, Andy Dufresne said, get busy living or get busy dying. And that's what I want us to do for these next several weeks. So to prepare, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to be in the last verse of Genesis chapter 2 and in Genesis chapter 3 this morning. There on your outline you can see what we're going to do today to just lay the foundation of the weeks to come. 
Today we're going to see that life as we know it is not the way it's supposed to be. And we're going to see why. Here in Genesis 2 and Genesis chapter 3, the first thing we're going to see is the cause of our death. Why death has entered into the world. Why death has entered into our experience as human beings. And the cause of death is ultimately sin. And then number two on your outline, this is where we'll spend a lot of time over the next several weeks. We're going to see just the introduction today of the effect of death. The effect that death has brought into our world through these five separations. Man separated from God, man separated from himself, man separated from fellow man, man separated from creation, and creation separated from creation. We're going to introduce these separations today, and then for the next several weeks, we're going to take them one by one by one by one. So here's where we're headed. Go ahead and open up to Genesis chapter 2. Let's look first at the last verse of chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, verse 25. This is before the fall. This was when things were the way they were supposed to be. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Here the last verse of Genesis chapter 2 vividly portrays the way things were supposed to be. Adam and Eve... There in the Garden of Eden, and the text tells us that they were naked and unashamed. Now, the word for naked describes, obviously, their physical nakedness, but it pictures something much more than that. Now, after the fall, nakedness will be used to describe humil or, uh, shame and vulnerability, and judgment, but before the fall, nakedness here actually describes the ideal picture of the way things were supposed to be with Adam and Eve. It pictures their purity and their innocence in their relationship with one another. Adam and Eve were there in the garden. They were naked, and they were without fear of exploitation. They did not know what shame was. It vividly pictures the way things were supposed to be. But sadly, this vulnerability didn't last long. It quickly moves to not the way things are supposed to be. Let's look at Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from any fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now, we could spend weeks here unpacking just these few verses in Genesis chapter 3, but there's just 
a few things that I want you to notice for now. The first thing I want you to see is actually there's an interesting wordplay in the Hebrew text going on with Genesis 2.25 and Genesis 3.1. A wordplay with two words in Genesis 2.25 and 3.1. Let me read this again. It's the word naked and the word crafty. Genesis 2.25 says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field. The two words here, the Hebrew words, naked and crafty, sound very similar in Hebrew. The word for naked is aromim, aromim. And the word for crafty is arum. Aromim and arum. They are phonetically related, phonetically similar. There's this wordplay going on here. And the point of the wordplay, when taken together, we see that the crafty serpent sees and is going to exploit the naked vulnerability of Adam and Eve. The wordplay here indicates that the serpent will now target this human innocence as part of his destructive plan to tempt Adam and Eve into sin. There in their vulnerable state, consider this, Adam and Eve only knew to trust. They had no reason to doubt They had no reason to fear. And Satan knows this, and he exploits it. The second thing I want you to see is how Satan exploited their vulnerability, and that is through challenging the word of God. Notice, continuing there in verse 1, And he, the serpent, that is Satan, said to the woman, Indeed has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden. And then notice verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. Even though that's what God said, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So notice what Satan does here in his craftiness. He knows that Adam and Eve are trusting, he knows that they're vulnerable, and so he challenges the word of God. And notice in the very way he phrases the question, he introduces the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment, that we're in the position to challenge the authority of the word of God. And then he outright denies it and he says, listen, you will not die for God knows that in the day you eat from it, you won't die, but you'll actually be blessed. Far from bringing Discipline, says the snake, you will actually be blessed if you disobey God. So now Adam and Eve, ever so trusting, ever so vulnerable, have a decision to make. Will they believe the word of the Lord? Or will they believe the word of the snake? Who will they trust? Warren Wiersbe says, what is the lie, the singular lie that has ruled civilization since the fall of man? It's the belief that men and women can be their own God and not suffer any consequences. So Adam and Eve, again, are faced with a dilemma. Whose word will they believe? 
the word of the Lord, which in previous chapters brings life and order to creation, or the word of the serpent, which as we see will bring death and destruction and chaos to the creation. Which then brings me to the third thing I want you to see here. Once Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, they disobey God. Now death and destruction and shame and guilt enter into the equation. Notice verse 7 of chapter 3. After they eat, then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Now that they disobeyed God, Adam and Eve now become conscious to their vulnerability to each other and try to hide themselves from one another and also from God. The sign that was once a picture of their healthy relationship is now covered and corrupted into a symbol of their shame. Now mistrust and alienation replace the safety and security and intimacy that they once enjoyed. And so now we see again number one on your outline. This is the cause of death. Sin has entered the world, and Paul says in Romans 5, sin entered the world, the world through one man and death through sin, and all have sinned. We see that sin has entered the world, that death has entered the world, and we'll see that the effects of sin and death now permeate all throughout the world, all throughout God's creation. And this is true certainly here in Genesis chapter 3, but it's also true for you and me today. If we just open our eyes and see there are the consequences of the effects of the fall of sin and death all around us. For example, just this week I went and visited one of our people in the hospital. And as a pastor, you know, you go and you do hospital visits. And one of the thoughts that always enter my mind when I go and visit people at the hospital is I think this is not the way it's supposed to be. We were not created to get sick. We were not created to have broken bones. We were not created to have heart attacks and cancer and Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. This is not the way it's supposed to be. But because of what we see here in Genesis 3, because sin entered the world and death through sin, this reality of death is something we all must face. We all must come to grips with the fact, again, I hate to burst your bubble, but we're all going to die. And we see the effects of death all around us. So let's take a look at number two on your outline, the effect of death seen in these five separations. Because of sin, death enters into the world. The reality and the process of death begins here in Genesis chapter 3. And we see this death spread throughout these five separations. And and, uh, I'm going to introduce these five separations to you now. And starting next week, we're going to go one by one by one by one in much greater detail. But let's introduce the five separations now. The first separation we see because of sin, because of death, is that man is separated from God. The first and the most significant separation or type of death that we see in Genesis 3 is spiritual death, man separated from God. Notice verses 8 through 11. 
They, that is Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Here we see that first separation that took place. Man separated from God. A spiritual separation. We see that humanity's relationship with its creator, the source of his life, is now broken. Notice those those questions there that God asks to Adam and to Eve. He says, where are you? They're hiding. What is this you have done? They've sinned. Hiding there in the garden, Adam and Eve are alienated from God. This is the first game of hide and seek. And once Adam and Eve realize now that they've sinned, what they should have done is they should have run to their creator and sought his forgiveness. But instead what we see there is that their guilt leaves them trying to self-atone for their sin by covering themselves with loin coverings, by self-protecting themselves, by hiding. And for the first time in all of human history, mankind is now afraid of God. This is not the way things are supposed to be. The second separation that we see as a consequence, as an effect of the fall and of death, is that man is separated from himself. There's a separation that takes place inside of man, both physically and psychologically. For example, look at verse 16 of chapter 3. When God gives the consequences to Eve, he says to the woman, verse 16, to the woman God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children. Here we see a physical consequence of sin. Now, I don't know what childbirth would have been like if Adam and Eve hadn't sinned, but what we do read here is that because of sin, pain increases. It's multiplied, greatly multiplied in childbirth. But this is not the way it was supposed to be. Later, we see this physical separation take place within Adam and Eve also in their physical death. Genesis tells us that Adam died at 930 years old. His soul and his body were separated from one another, and he died. We see this carried forward not only to Adam and into Eve, but also there in chapter 4, we see uh, death taking place as well, and it spreads throughout all of Scripture. This is not the way it's supposed to be. There's also a psychological separation that takes place in Adam and Eve. For the first time, psychologically, now they experience guilt and shame because of their sin. And throughout the scripture, we read about this guilt and this shame that weighs heavily on us because of our sin. This is, though, not the way it was supposed to be. 
The third separation, the third effect of sin that we see here in Genesis is that man is separated from fellow man. There's now a division between Adam and Eve. We see this notably, notice in verse 12 of chapter 3. Adam and Eve are now separated from one another. Genesis chapter 12, or verse 3, verse 12. When God comes to Adam and he says, what of this you have done? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Here we see the effect of man being separated from Eve, Adam being separated from Eve as they play this blame game. Adam and Eve, once trusting of one another, now there's blame. There's a breakdown of their interpersonal relationship. And again, in chapter 4, the story continues as Abel is murdered by his own brother Cain. You see, brother separated from brother. This is not the way things were supposed to be. The fourth separation that we see in Genesis chapter 3 is that man is separated from creation. Man is separated from creation. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. It was a perfect place, a beautiful place, but notice what happens because of sin in verse 19 of chapter 3. Speaking to Adam, God said, by the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return. Because of sin, Now, man, Adam, is separated from creation because of sin. His work will be difficult. We also see this in the fact that Adam and Eve will be cast out of the Garden of Eden. They're physically separated from the Garden of Eden. Notice verses 23 and 24. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned in every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve, once placed in the Garden of Eden, who in an unfallen state would have stayed there and enjoyed it forever and ever, are now cast out of the garden, never to return again. This is not the way things were supposed to be. The fifth separation that occurred because of sin is creation is separated from creation. Previously, the creation was good. God declared it to be good. But now, because of sin it too will suffer the consequences. Notice verse 17, again speaking to Adam. God says there halfway through verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Verse 18, both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. Before the fall, the ground was not cursed. Before the fall, there were no thorns and thistles or weeds. But because of Adam's sin, now this is the negative consequence of sin on the creation itself. 
By the way, Paul alludes to this same idea in the book of Romans chapter 8. He says the creation was subjected to futility and the whole creation now groans and suffers the pains of childbirth until now. But as you take a look at these five separations, man separated from God, man separated from himself, man separated from man, man separated from creation, creation separated from creation. These are all the effects, the consequences of the fall of sin and of death entering into the world. We see this not only in Genesis 3, but we see this all over our world, all over the creation even today. From all, for all of human history, ever since Genesis chapter 3, human beings have tried and given our full effort. We've given everything we can to try to resolve those five separations in some way. And certainly in some areas we've made progress, but we're only kicking the proverbial can down the road. We cannot resolve these five separations on our own. But think about this. In man being separated from God, every man-made religion out there ultimately is trying to resolve that problem, that separation. And throughout the world, for all of human history, People have tried to appease God in some way with their own efforts, but all of it makes up for nothing. With that second separation, the separation from within ourselves, we feel that guilt and that shame. And just think of all of the things we do to try to numb ourselves to the guilt and the shame that we feel. Whether it's alcoholism or drug abuse or numbing ourselves with entertainment we don't like to face the sad reality of our guilt and of our shame. And physically, think of all the things, the billions of dollars, the millions of people who give their lives, and again, some of this is good. Advancements in modern medicine, they've been helpful, but none of them can actually fix the problem of our physical death. We think about the third separation, our separation from fellow human beings. We see the evidence of the fall everywhere. In war, violence, racism. And we've given our best efforts to try to fix these things. This is why we have things like NATO and the United Nations and government, but Everything we do ultimately doesn't fix, doesn't reconcile man and man. With the fourth separation, humanity from creation. Think of all the things we do, all the advancements we've made, but again, we're just kicking the can down the road to try to resolve the separation of humanity from creation. We try to figure out how to produce enough food for the people of the world. We argue over amount of resources, natural resources, and who can use them and who can't use them. But we see the evidence of mankind separated from creation all over the place. And then finally, creation separated from creation. We see the evidence of this in floods and droughts and earthquakes and tsunamis and tornadoes. And all of our best efforts of human beings, we cannot control the chaos within creation itself. 
If we just open our eyes, we see evidence of the fall, evidence of death and sin everywhere we look. That's all the bad news, by the way. But there's good news. The good news is that there's a sixth separation that we see here in Genesis chapter 3. A sixth separation that God in his infinite wisdom provides the only solution that will bring reconciliation to these five separations. I want you to look at Genesis 3 verses 14 and 15. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And here's the good news. Here's the sixth separation, the one that will resolve all the other separations. God says to the serpent, to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, this is Jesus, shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Here, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, is often called the first gospel. The promise God makes that one day, the seed of Eve, the Messiah, the Savior, will come and crush the head of the serpent. This sets up, of course, the cosmic battle that will take place between Jesus and Satan. Jesus, of course, being the victor. This ultimately brings us to the cross. And I want you to think about what took place on the cross with these five separations. On the cross of Jesus, God brings partial reconciliation now and full reconciliation in eternity to these five separations. Number one, on the cross, Jesus was separated from God the Father for us. Jesus took upon himself the sin and the penalty of sin that you and I deserve. There on the cross, the Son of God was separated from the Father as the substitute for our sin. Number two, Jesus was separated from himself. His body and his soul were divided. He died a physical, agonizing, suffering death. And he died a real death. Number three, Jesus was separated from his fellow man. Everyone turned away from him on the cross. His disciples, his family, the people for whom he came, Jesus was alone on the cross. Number four, Jesus was separated from creation on the cross. He was given a crown of thorns. He was given but rejected bitter wine. He was nailed to a cross, a tree, the very source of man's temptation there in the garden. And number five, when Jesus was on the cross, creation was separated from creation. The sky was darkened. From noon until three, there was an earthquake. Tombs were opened, and against the very laws of nature, against the very laws of creation, dead people rose from the grave. Again, there on the cross of Jesus, God brings 
partial reconciliation now and full reconciliation later to these five separations. One day, in the new heavens and the new earth, because of the cross of Jesus, those five separations will be fully reconciled. One day, we will, we will return to the way things were supposed to be. But we don't have to wait until then to experience and live in at least partial reconciliation now. And that's what we're going to go over these next five and six weeks as we address these divisions one by one by one. But the introduction to experiencing these reconciliations begins first and foremost again with the gospel of who Jesus is. That on the cross, Jesus paid the full penalty for our sin. And through Jesus, God offers to you freely the gift of eternal life, the forgiveness of sins. And all you do, all you can do, is to accept that gift through faith. And if you're here this morning or watching online and you don't know that reconciliation, then I want to give you the opportunity, the invitation to put your faith in Jesus. And then for the next several weeks, we're going to go, like I said, through these five separations in much greater detail. And we will see how Jesus, the snake crusher of Genesis 3.15, will bring about reconciliation to each of these five separations, partially now and fully in eternity, when he will return things to the way things were supposed to be. So that's where we're headed. To close, let me ask you a few questions. I want you to think back to maybe when you first went to school or college. You probably went through a new student orientation. Or when you began a career, your employer might have given you some orientation and training to learn about the new company. Before you got married, maybe you did premarital counseling with a pastor. Before you had children, maybe you asked friends or your parents what it's like. Maybe you read the book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Before you retired, maybe you talked with other retired friends about how they made the shift from working life to retired life. Well, this series is going to be your death orientation. Death is an inevitable reality for all of us. But it's only when we accept the inevitability of death that I believe we can truly live the way God intends us to live. Would you pray with me? Father, we do confess our own sin. And we see with our own eyes the consequences of our sin. The death and destruction and chaos that's entered into our world. And Father, we long as your creation longs for the full reconciliation and redemption that because of Jesus you have promised to one day bring. But Father, as we await that day, I pray that even in the here and now, you would in part, partially, allow us to experience the reconciliation you desire for us. First and foremost, we ask that we would feel the reconciliation we have with Jesus. 
that we know that eternally there's nothing now that can separate us from your love, that you have provided everything we need and more by providing Jesus to die in our place. And Father, as we think about the second separation, as we think about us being separated from one another, I pray that because of the work of Christ and his reconciliation, the the power of your spirit would allow us to bring reconciliation in our broken relationships. Father, I pray that we would allow ourselves to be freed of the guilt and the shame that we feel because of our sin. I pray that as we struggle in the midst of this creation, this world we live in, I pray that you would give us joy in our work, that even as we toil, we wouldn't toil for nothing. And Father, I pray that as we live in this fallen world, you would give us eyes to see ways that we can leave a lasting legacy and impact on this world that you've given to us. Father, help us to come to terms with our own death, the reality that this life is not all that there is. Help us to live now with the great promises you've given us in eternity. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.